0: Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel African. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. That was FIFA president Gianni Infantino making a rather strange attempt to show solidarity with those impacted by the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Now FIFA is getting a fresh round of the exact kind of attention that it doesn't want, and it could impact its decision on who hosts the 2030 World Cup. It's Wednesday, March 15th. Happy Ides of March to those who celebrate. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter and this is Front Office Sports Today. A petition with over one million signatures has been sent to FIFA ahead of its Congress, which takes place tomorrow in Kigali, Rwanda. The petition calls on FIFA to compensate migrant workers and their families for abuses prior to and during the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. FIFA has been incredibly defiant on this particular issue, we'll get to that in a moment, but these calls are not falling on deaf ears. FIFA actually agreed to address these issues at this Congress after the Norwegian Football Association submitted an official request that FIFA quote, assess whether it has fulfilled its responsibility to remedy related to the 2022 World Cup, including an investigation into World Cup related deaths and injuries, which to me sounds like a nice way of saying you didn't do that the first time. Why don't you give it one more try? And FIFA, to put it nicely, could use one more try here. These issues came up right as the World Cup was starting, and FIFA president Gianni Infantino responded by saying Europeans can't talk about other people's human rights issues in a speech which probably sounded better in his head than it did when he said it in front of millions of people. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. I'm not going to take up Infantino's request that we don't talk about this until the year 5022. Instead, let's dive into this ugliness right now. The Guardian did an investigation where they looked at data on migrant workers who went to Qatar from countries that have accessible records on this starting in 2010 when Qatar was awarded the World Cup through 2020. They found that around 6,500 workers died. Now, not all of those workers were working on World Cup projects, and one assumes that not all of them died due to injuries connected to their labor. But it's also an undercount of how many migrant workers died in Qatar in that period because the Guardian was not able to obtain records connected to every country that Qatar sources migrant labor from. So that gives us a vague idea of the numbers we might be looking at here. What does Qatar say? Well, for a long time, their answer to that same question was three. Not 3000, not 300, three. But the actual number was a lot higher, and in the middle of the World Cup, a Qatari official revised the number to between 400 and 500 deaths related to the tournament. All this gets to a different issue, which is that it was insane to choose Qatar in the first place. First of all, as I alluded to, they only had one major stadium when they were selected. There are many countries that have lots of major stadiums ready to go without building a single one. Second, Qatar's population is a little under 3 million. Around 1 million people were expected to come for the World Cup. A country of three million does not have one million hotel rooms ready to go. So they set up tent villages, some people stayed on cruise ships, some people stayed in nearby countries and just flew in and out, and some people stayed in the homes of people who were booted out by their landlords so that they could cash in on the influx of visitors with a lot of money. Third, the heat. Doha, where the tournament was held, is regularly in the triple digits in the summer, which is why the World Cup was moved to November. That same consideration was not made for the workers who built the stadiums. And fourth, workers' rights. Qatar migrant workers typically operate under the kafala system, in which they can't change employers or leave the country without their employer's permission — it's essentially modern slavery. Also, many of these workers pay exorbitant recruitment fees just to get the job, so they have to work for a long time, often in in brutal heat, with 10 people staying in one small apartment just to get to zero. These conditions eventually improved, but only after journalists started finding migrant labor camps and filming what they were like. So why did FIFA choose Qatar to host the World Cup? No one has admitted to this as far as I know, but there are credible accusations and eyewitness accounts and common sense that all point to bribery. All of this has very high stakes for FIFA because they have to choose who is going to host the 2030 World Cup, and one of the top contenders is Saudi Arabia, which is another oil-rich nation with major human rights issues. For instance, here's Alex Morgan, probably the most famous active American soccer player, talking about FIFA considering bringing on the Saudi tourism board as a sponsor for the Women's World Cup, which takes place this year. I think it's bizarre that um, FIFA has looked to have a Visit Saudi sponsorship for the Women's World Cup when I, myself, Alex Morgan, would not even be supported and accepted. in that country, so uh, I, I just don't understand it." So it seems like a no-brainer to choose either the bid — from Uruguay, Argentina, Chile and Paraguay — or the one from Spain and Portugal, which initially included Ukraine but said this week it would add Morocco to the bid because Ukraine is unlikely to be ready due to the war started by the 2018 World Cup host, who also certain, almost certainly bribed their way into hosting. But Saudi Arabia is willing to spend many billions of dollars on this, including to bankroll its planned co-hosts Egypt and Greece. FIFA was willing to ignore a whole lot of glaringly obvious issues when presented with a country willing to spend whatever it took. We'll find out soon what lesson it learned from all that. Let's see what else is happening out there. We're getting some clarity and a new legal venue in Michael Irvin's legal battle against Marriott. The lawsuit has moved from Texas State Court to Maricopa County and now includes the Renaissance Hotel operating company and four employees, including his accuser. And we now know more about what Irvin is accused of doing. The Marriott employee said he made at least one very graphic sexual comment to her, touched her arm in a way she didn't like, and continued to pursue her when she backed off, and was visibly drunk and slurring his words. As a reminder, Marriott and everyone else here have not pressed charges against Irvin. They simply told him he cannot stay at their properties anymore, and he was subsequently removed from the NFL Network Super Bowl coverage and other media appearances. It's also possible that Irvin said things that he does not remember saying, which adds an interesting wrinkle to the he-said-she-said aspect of this. We also did a deeper dive on this case two weeks ago, and AJ Perez has a story on the recent updates on frontofficesports.com. Atletico Madrid, currently in third place in La Liga as they so often are, recorded $446 million in revenue, marking a 19% year-over-year increase over the 2020-21 season, which was mostly played without live fans. The increases did, however, still come with a net loss of $27 million, narrowing from the $119 million it reported the year prior. The club's net spend for the season on transfers was $62 million. Up next, I had a really fun chat with former MLB All-Star Adam Jones. I will warn you right now that after you listen to this, you will want to drop what you are doing and travel to the beautiful city of your choice. We'll have that conversation right after this. 2000. 2008. 2022 when it comes to the economy those are some scary years dot com crash housing crash and the roller coaster we're going through right now one thing is certain it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers but over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle the number one cloud financial system netsuite gives you visibility and control of your financials inventory hr planning and budgeting so you can manage risk get reliable forecasts and improve margins Everything you need, all in one place. So, how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer: Netsuite. Netsuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improve their visibility and control when they upgraded to Netsuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, Netsuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com/frontoffice right now. Netsuite.com/frontoffice. NetSuite.com slash frontoffice. All right, I'm very excited now to be joined by retired MLB player, longtime Baltimore Orioles star Adam Jones. Welcome, Adam.
1: Uh, how you guys doing? I love you guys. Uh, Instagram, I'm glad to be able to finally talk to you.
0: Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, our our social team, they're they're like magical people. I don't know how oh, they the they do everything. They're yeah, they're they're fantastic. <laughs> um so your name has been coming up a lot lately actually. I've even like included you in in a recent article uh because you had that, you know, much remembered catch in the 2017 World Baseball Classic that helped the US uh finally get over the hump and and win one of the tournaments. Have has that memory been coming back lately? Or?
1: I mean, it's it's obviously a memory that's never going to leave. Um, it's it's great to be known for a great catch in a great situation. And I think the coolest part about it is that um, we didn't have a WBC. It was the coolest and unfortunate. We didn't have a WBC in 2020, so that catch kept getting played more and more. So me and Matt Veskerger and his him me catching his Santa Maria, are just lasted for six years. So it was just like. Every time, you're just anticipation, anticipation, and people, I guess, more and more retweets, especially over the last month with the building up to it. So it was a great play, and it's, it's great that a lot of people uh, remember it, and it's iconic. Um, I just hope that this year, this tournament, someone else does something just as iconic and uh, something memorable for them, for their family, and uh, for their nation.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're ready to, to pass the torch. And yeah, what was that like to, I mean, you know, we're obviously we're talking about it now because the World Baseball Classic is happening now, but... It's it's something that we don't get at least in in the U.S. in baseball culture is playing for your country. You know, you, you play for your team. You you know, might bounce around. You you only you know moved around a couple times. But yeah, playing for your country. What was that like?
1: It was incredible. I mean, obviously, I tried out. – Forget, never forget. I tried out for Team USA, uh, 15 and 16. I didn't make it. They took one of my good friends at the time, and that made me hungry that one day I'm gonna be able to to play for Team USA, wear these colors. And they called me in 2013 uh easily yes Um, i know we didn't win the we didn't win it but they called back in 17 and it was another very very easy yes and it was just pride you know get to get to uh where the country that i'm from on the on my chest and play for 330 um 330 million americans in the diversity of of, of our country so i was playing for everybody for those for that tournament opposed to I'm playing 162 for the Orioles. I played um, those seven, eight games for the entire nation. So that was really, really humbling. And and I know know the passion of the other countries. Obviously, they're a lot smaller in terms of size, like Dominican, Venezuela. So their passion shows a little bit different. But we have just as much passion as them. And it was great to be able to uh, to show it.
0: And, And I know this stuff can be hard to describe. But how would you characterize that difference between, you know, the the, the U S passion, the U S connection to baseball and what you might see and say, yeah, the Dominican or Venezuela.
1: Well, it's just, I mean, we're a different nation. We're obviously the United States of America. So it's the land of the free. And there's just so many, so much opportunity in America to where, you know, our sports are amazing and they are uh, vital to our society. But we also have thousands of other things that we can do in the United States that have garnered just as much of attention. Um, so when dominican that that's their sport that's their national pastime in america we have basketball football baseball hockey tennis golf and and a plethora of other things so um it's just a little bit different i would say but the passion is still there nonetheless you just i just think you have 80 to 90 percent of them for one sport when you know we we are much more divided because we have a lot more sports
0: and and sort of the the funny background of this conversation is that you're speaking to me from Spain, where you now live. Or, of course, they've got a national sport there too. Uh, what brought you to that country?
1: Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you hit on it. Football is the national sport here, soccer, and you know they are they are crazy about it. No matter where you go, you just go into any square when there's a ball around, man or woman. They know they know how to kick the ball back to you, and I think that's just truly impressive. And uh, we moved out to Barcelona uh, last year just to. See the world. We played our final two years in Japan, and it opened our eyes to travel. And as I see, my wife has a travel company, Axis Travel, luxury travel, and we just we just want to see the world. Um, a lot of our friends, family are very I don't say close minded, but are just enjoy their bubble. You know, I think a lot of people are like that. They enjoy their bubble. They enjoy the traveling to Vegas and traveling to Miami, thinking that is like the most coolest trips ever. Um, but we want to see every part of the world. And I want to take my family, friends, and explore it. And Barcelona was was an easy hub because Spanish. I'm from San Diego. Um, and Barcelona's airport is an hour, two hours from some of the most iconic cities in the world. And, you know, we were just in Geneva a couple of weeks ago. My wife just got back from Athens. And these are all flights to, from San Diego, hour and a half, you're in Reno, I'd rather be in, you know, I'd rather be in <laughs> Athens or London or Paris or Prague or Morocco rather than being in Reno or Albuquerque. Those are the proximity <laughs> flights. <from Singapore.
0: laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I was actually going to ask you where, where else have you been, but, you, but um, instead I'll say what's what's on your list? What's on the, you know, the next place you'd like to hit?
1: Oh, I'd asked my wife that today, which is crazy. Which is Egypt, Egypt, Petra, uh, that's Jordan and Israel. I think that's the... The next trip, because you can do all three in a, in a short amount of time, uh, in a week, I should say. Um, maybe longer? Um, no, at the same time. Okay. Well, we're going to do that. That's the next one. <laughs> uh, Egypt, Israel, and um, and Jordan go out to Petra. But we also planning a Scandinavian trip going up to uh, the Scandinavian countries. Um, so it's just Europe is at our hands. we we're, we're, we got a South Africa trip coming up, going down to Mauritius. I've seen on the DP World Tour, they have a, amazing golf courses down there. So I'm going to be golfing while the kids have to – well, I golf early. So it, it's going to be fun. It, I think the world has, is is at our fingertips. Um, we're not afraid to travel. I think the, the biggest thing, people, they are afraid the flight is long. and this. No, just get on the flight, buy the ticket, and go. You will not regret it because, again, the United States is great, great national parks, great beaches, all this stuff. The world is a lot older and a lot – and I think people just need to see it and explore it and not be afraid that it's so far. It's too expensive. You know, it's expensive to stay at home because you're going, you don't, you know, you're going to spend money on the same crap material things that you do where you're at. So why not spend it on a magnificent, magnificent experience? Like we take our kids to the Maldives. They talk about that. I could easily spend that money and buy them video games, but they're not going to appreciate that. They'll like it. but They're not going to appreciate that. So I think the travel aspect is really, really, uh, um, therapeutic, honestly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. You're, you're, you know, making me jealous. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I haven't traveled internationally since, I don't think since my son was born, he's seven. Okay. So it sounds like your kids like it and uh, handle it and do just fine.
1: Uh, 10 countries already. I think the ten, maybe in 10, 11 countries so far. Uh, that's and, awesome. You know, it, they're at the perfect age. My youngest son just turned seven last week, or two weeks ago. So they're 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 at the perfect age. They can carry their own suitcases, lug it on. Just just come on with me. They're the perfect ages for
0: it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, and and but you know, getting back to baseball, we probably should. Um, you, you're still obviously connected to that world. You've got your show, foul territory. Um, so. But how, what's it like to be connected to you know the sport you played obviously for your whole career, uh, but but from a distance and as a retired player?
1: It still is cool because a lot of a lot of the former guys said if you want to stay involved with the game of baseball, don't don't go too far, don't don't stretch yourself too far. Again, you had a good career. Go enjoy the fruits of your labor. Go and travel. Go and see the world. Go take time with your family. Um, but there, but it's still a very passion for mine, for me. It's something that I know well, um, so I got knowledge to pass down to the next generation. And my family understands that, that that's my, you know, my, my big passion. And, you know, my wife is very, uh, very just, she allows me to just, you know, do whatever I want with the baseball world. And that's very, that's amazing because again, she has things she wants to do and, you know, this compromise of marriage that, hey, we do. Uh, I, I try to do as much as I can with her and for what she wants. But it's times where, you know, I do need that fix, that itch of baseball. And it's just something that, again, it's I don't have the itch to physically play, but I have the itch to be around it in some capacity. And with foul territory, working with Scott, working with AJ, working with Frazier, Kipnis, Kratz, uh, Kane, like these are guys that we played against each other, we're in battle with. We all gave our bodies to it. Now we can just enjoy our families, but still – talk about the game and still give our stories out because we had good careers. People want to know, um, people want to know our stories.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Adam Jones, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Inspiring conversation. Anytime, brother. That's it for today. Here's hoping your bracket survives the first round of March Madness over in the world baseball classic. We have some fierce fights among the U S and the Caribbean teams, but I'll be shocked if Japan doesn't make it to the finals. They're looking dominant right now. Thanks for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.